When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. For those of you listening to this podcast yesterday and today, first of all, well done. Gold star for you. Consider yourself part of the team. But you'll have heard me talking about King Tut. Yesterday was an anniversary of the uncovering of King Tut's sarcophagus in 1924. But on this episode, I want to talk about his new home. For the first time ever, ever, a massive display of Tutankhamun objects is going into a permanent gallery in Cairo. It's very exciting. It's called the Grand Egyptian Museum. It's an enormous museum in the desert. Cost about a billion dollars. That's not an exaggeration. And it is out of town, so you no longer have to drive from the pyramids into central Cairo through all the traffic. Magnificent objects from ancient Egypt. You're going to love it. It's an insulated concrete design that overcomes the challenge of desert temperatures. The roof often gets to 70 degrees centigrade, apparently. It's amazing. It's going to have 100,000 artifacts in it. 20% of those are displayed for the first time. It's so cool. If you go and look at the pictures, amazing monumental statues of kings and gods. It is so exciting. And as I say, huge numbers of objects, something like 5,500 objects, which are brought from his tomb but aren't really displayed because there's only a little small section in the museum in Cairo. These will now be there for the first time on permanent display. It is so cool. What I love about Egypt, I like looking up. I like going there. In Britain, we go and look at archaeology. It's lovely, but it's at shin level, at knee-high level. Isn't that a marvellous bit of wall from the uh, Anglo-Saxon period? Oh, how wonderful. You can just see the hypercourse and the Roman underfloor heating there. That's great. Of course it's great. When you go to Egypt, you're looking up. It's multi-story heritage and archaeology. That's what I love about it. And we all love Egyptology. Some of us forgot to love Egyptology when we went through puberty. Bear in mind, we all loved it when we were kids. So reconnect with your Egyptology here in this episode. We've got the wonderful Dr. Campbell Price. He's curator of Egypt and Sudan at Manchester Museum. It's one of the most significant collections of Egyptian objects in the UK. He's a brilliant communicator. You're going to absolutely love him. If you want to go and listen to more podcasts, even watch some documentaries about ancient Egypt, there's only one place to that, really, and that's History Hit TV. Head over to History Hit TV. You can follow the link in the information, the description of this podcast. Just click on it from your phone. So simple. Just do that. Follow the link, and then you'll be taken to a joyful place of safety for history fans. So head over and do that. Sign up today. You get 14 days completely free, so you can check it out for free. In the meantime, though, here's Dr. Campbell Price talking about Egypt and the new Grand Egyptian Museum opening this year. Campbell, great to have you on the pod. Pleasure, Dan. I'm a big fan. 
Oh, well, I'm a big fan of yours, dude. I'm also a big fan of Egyptology. I went to Egypt a couple of years ago for a work project, and I did find myself thinking, like, we all loved Egyptology when we were kids. It's like dinosaurs. Why did we ever fall out of love with them, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, Egyptology is the best. It's unbelievable. Yeah, when I was a kid, I remember distinctly being five years old, going into a museum, going straight past the dinosaurs into the Egyptology room, and just seeing things in a case and thinking, what was life like that long ago? And as you say, you know, if you've been to Egypt and you've looked around, it's just a one big living museum. Incredible place. Yeah, and we almost think kind of ground zero for Western culture. I know that's dodgy, but like it's kind of Greece. And actually, don't, we don't think enough about the ancient Near East, we don't think about Egypt enough. When you're looking at the grave goods, the, the quality of statuary, then the Greeks start to look a lot less impressive because you're just like, okay, well, hang on, they were doing this a thousand years before. Yeah, I think, you know, the Greeks and the Romans are the first tourists to Egypt. They go, they are impressed by the depth of history comparative to what they perceive as their own history. And they just interact with monuments and with the people in Egypt. And that's something I find interesting in sites like Karnak. You know, it's like, sort of like the ancient Egyptian Westminster Abbey. It's around for, well, it's well over a thousand years. And Greeks and Romans go and they're fascinated and they absorb, yeah, especially ideas of the principle of depicting the human form in statuary. And so Greece and Rome is this kind of conduit for us in the West, uh, modern Western culture and, and ancient Egypt. What's going on in Egyptology at the moment? I've been to the Grand Egyptian Museum. It is like kind of giant, you know, in one of those films where like a spaceship lands on Earth that's so big you can't actually kind of see it from the ground. And we've all seen the images recently of this kind of parade-like of dead pharaohs who have been brought from central Cairo, the traditional museum, out to the, the suburbs, of like out to near the pyramids at the new Grand Museum. Is this exciting? Yeah, I mean, I think the Egyptian authorities are very conscious that the, the world is watching and especially because of the downturn in tourism due to the pandemic, they want to put on a good show. So yeah, the, the royal mummies were transferred, as you say, from the downtown museum, Tahrir Square, uh, which the old museum I kind of have a love for, because as a student, I spent a lot of time there. And you would see people coming in, some of them very respectful, some of them not. And it's just a beautiful, hallowed space, this kind of temple of Egyptology. But yeah, the royal mummies were taken out to another museum, the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization, which is in Fustat, kind of area of medieval Cairo. And then everything else, all the good stuff, is going to go out to the pyramids, to the Grand Egyptian Museum, which we assume will open in 2022. But yeah, I've, I've been to the site a couple of years ago and when the conservation laboratories opened, gosh, five or six years ago, I went for a tour of those and it was absolutely jaw-dropping stuff because it's stuff you see reproduced in books all the time, the Tutankhamun material, just people working on it, the best conservators in the world working with great pride, Egyptian colleagues working with great pride in their own heritage and it's just very impressive. And it's going to be the biggest museum of archaeology on earth. Yeah, so stated by the authorities, 100,000 objects, a good chunk of those that have never been on display before. I think as a tourist, you know, without any knowledge of, of archaeology, the first thing you'll see, the most impressive kind of entrance is this, what's been called the Grand Staircase. So you walk up and there will be dozens of royal statues to kind of mark different kings and queens of Egypt. And as someone who is 
a great lover of Egyptian sculpture. I wrote my PhD on Egyptian statuary. I just, I'm excited to see that. And it leads you up to this great vista, this panorama of the pyramids. And then you can go around and explore all of the Tutankhamun material. Again, people assume because the Tutankhamun stuff is so famous, it was always on display. That's not the case. A chunk of it was in Cairo, in the downtown museum, but always bits of it were kind of sequestered away or in storage or on loan. So this will be the first time. The pants were in storage, for example. The right? pants are quite delicate. Tutankhamun's underwear is, is quite delicate. But there were lots of pants, as we all need, for an internal journey. Well, indeed. Whether, and I, I've wondered about that, whether they were included you know, for eternity, or were they included because they had actually been used? So they touched the divine body. And, you know, if the king is a god, then his pants are, by extension, uh, his underwear is is touched by a god. And we know of people even saying that they wrap mummies up in shrouds and in linen bandages, which had touched the statues of gods in temples. So, yeah, maybe that's why they're keeping the underwear. Interesting. I like that theory. That's good, man. Well, we could go down the old rabbit hole on Tutankhamun. But as you say, gigantic number of objects which will be displayed fantastically. Let's get away from King Tut for a second because I would actually like to indulge your fascination in statuary a bit more because is it just good to get them all under one roof looking magnificent? What's the vibe here? Always as a curator wants to tell a story. And with the Grand Egyptian Museum, there is just so much stuff to paint with. You know, you're painting on this vast canvas Something that I like to get across to visitors at Manchester Museum and when they're talking about statuary is, you know, this stuff was never designed to be in a museum. It's not meant to be like in a gallery. So statues were meant to function on a different level. So they're not meant to look like the people they represent. And we cannot, a modern Western brain cannot compute that a statue might not be intended to look like the person. So when you go in, there's this vast, you know, almost 10 metre tall statue of Ramses II, which has been... Actually, I'm going to stop you there, Campbell. I think modern people are used to all the Instagram filters and all the rest of it might be quite used to the idea <laughs> oh, maybe. that the uh, people depicted are not actually like anything like what they look like in real maybe. life. Maybe. Ramses was certainly fond of a filter. But the fact that his statue has been re-inscribed often several times with different kings' names on is not, you know, a sign of lack of respect it's because these objects, especially Ramses II's sculpture, colossal sculpture, these were worshipped as gods. <laughs> Statues themselves had their own names. They were individually idolised and worshipped and were given offerings. So later kings would add their own names to kind of tap in to that kingly magic, that kind of power. And so far from being a kind of a way of dissing your predecessor by putting your own name on something... It only adds to the power of the statue. But, you know, it's about the phenomenology, the aspect of going in and looking up and thinking, wow, that king is a god. And I'm sure the statues were also designed with the king, the living king in mind, as an audience himself, because they would make him feel even more godlike if he was walking through the temple and there were 10 metre statues of himself. Listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the Grand Egyptian Museum opening this year, the hundredth anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Wonderful. More after this. 
How did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And how should we read these statues if they're not designed to look like someone? In some way, I guess, they're meant to embody the idea of kingship. And so you're meant to look up at them absolutely and be impressed by them. But they are also made, I think, with the gods in mind. And I mean, this is something we don't take seriously, that a lot of ancient Egyptian monuments were not just made to impress living people because most living people couldn't see them. Regular people, the hoi polloi, were not allowed inside temples like Karnak. So you are building something massive. Well, I guess like a pyramid, most people can see that. But statuary in, in a temple, most people in ancient Egypt were farmers, so they wouldn't be allowed to or have any inclination to go into a temple. You're building big so that you can press the gods and say to the gods, I am one of you. I'm one of your peers. So, you know, grant me eternal life in the afterlife and recognize me as a legitimate, powerful king. But we forget, of course, often with a modern secular perspective, how important the gods were as an audience. That's a really good point. Just while we're on the subject of Ramesses, because I've got an expert here, where are we on Ramesses at the moment? Like, terribly overrated? Like, are we buying his own PR? Or was he great? I mean, he was lucky because he lived so long. Well, hey, listen, pal. <laughs> like, all great men are lucky, right? There's no... Yes. But if you ask me, who would I invite to my, um, you know, historical dinner party? Ramesses the Great wouldn't be on there. I think he would be quite dull, actually, to talk to. Much better to speak to someone like Hatshepsut, female pharaoh, I think she would be far more interesting a conversationalist. But no, I think Ramesses was lucky to an extent. He had ambition and he had a vision for how he wanted things to go. But, you know, he had people around him. You know, the king doesn't make all the... He's, he's not the one with the chisel and the, the mallet carving those statues. I think the people around him, the PR machine, for want of a better term, was pretty powerful in the reign of Ramesses II. How much can we know about Ramesses? So little. I mean, even even texts that purport to be personal accounts, like his texts about the Battle of Kadesh. So he goes into battle, he beats up Egypt's enemies, so he claims, of course, 
they claim they won in their historical uh, texts. All of that is filtered through what Egyptologists call decorum, this idea of what is right and wrong to represent in word and image. And so it's not appropriate to describe things which are, are negative or make the king look anything less than superhuman. So you cannot trust anything. We want to, we look at ancient Egypt, it looks kind of familiar. And as you already alluded to, that's problematic in, in itself in the 19th century. British European archaeologists were going to Egypt and seeing themselves in the ancient Egyptians, seeing this kind of imperial race of people, which of course is loaded with racist and minimalizing assumptions. But in fact, the text, the images are so, historical reality is so incidental. History, as we understand it, wasn't of interest to the ancient Egyptians. And also the time period. I mean, it's like Ramesses lived as long as Cleopatra as Alfred the Great before us, right? We're talking like gigantic. Yeah, long periods of time. Cleopatra is closer in time to us than she was to the pyramids being built. So you're talking a vast amount of time. And I think even Ramesses II, by the time he was on the throne, you know, he had 1,800 years of dynastic history to look back on. And the ancient Egyptians, although they don't have the same interests as we do, they are aware of the past. You know, the pyramids are already a thousand years old by the time Ramses the Great's around. And I think they derived not just historical interest, because we've got evidence of basically tourist graffiti from the reign of Ramses II where they're going to visit the pyramids, but someone like Ramses would derive kind of legitimacy and power if he could prove that he could connect himself to great kings from the past. And he does this. He he has his artisans compose these big, long king lists where there's a vast sweep of history and he puts himself in the active, most recent present and he's drawing on all this, this power. I often think it's like a divine energy battery that would have charged him for the 66 years he was on the throne. Well, it's, you know, making fancy uh, family trees. You know, the European aristocrats did not invent that idea. Just quickly, on his great battle of Kadesh, I'm disappointed to learn recently that it was a bit of a strategic standoff. So he just comes back and he says it was a great victory. If we've learned anything from Ramesses, just write your own press releases. Yeah, it's interesting with the Battle of Kadesh. Because of this system I mentioned of decorum, it's appropriate to carve certain things in certain places in Egyptian temples. So if you walk in to Great Temple, you'll find, like Karnak, on the outside walls, there are scenes of battles. But inside, that's not permissible. It's not allowed to be shown in the presence of the gods. So you have those kind of dangerous, violent engagements with disorder on the outside, but the pure, sanctified, sacred stuff on the inside, nearer the god's statue. So you do wonder... He's carving it on a temple wall to advertise and show off to the gods. As I've said, that's definitely true. Hieroglyphs themselves are the medu nature, the words of the gods. So if you write something in hieroglyphs, the gods can magically read it, regardless of whether a human eye can see the inscription or not. But the fact that that kind of scene, that publicity snapshot is on the outside, does maybe assume that he was expecting to impress people who couldn't otherwise get into the inner parts of temples. So yes, you're right. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, the gods are an audience for him. 
Is there a political audience? Surely an element of doing that age-old thing which is wrapping yourself up in divine sense of kingship, time-hallowed. That must be about nasty humans trying to get him off the throne and give it to his kids, you know. Exactly, and we know that because later King Ramses III definitely gets the, the chop at the hand of one of his scheming wives, and we've got a text that discusses this, basically trial uh, transcripts of this harem conspiracy where there are people who do plot to murder the king. So you see it more in the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies seem particularly scandalous and scheming and outrageous, but that's only because we've got the word of other historians about it. Uh, the same thing's probably happening earlier on in Egyptian history. And we know with Ramesses III, you know, x-rays and CT scans show that he had his throat cut. So, you know, people can be bumped off. So you, I think you've got to keep people on side. And that's where I think someone like Hatshepsut, who rules a few generations before Ramesses II, kept people on side. You know, one of her great feats was that she could rule Egypt quite successfully for 20 years and keep everyone in the inner elite, the political movers and shakers, happy. Let's come back to the museum. Is it at all controversial? Everything in Egypt and sadly and everything in the heritage sector seems very political. What are you hearing about the museum and how it's being taken on all sides of Egyptian society? Yeah, I mean, sure, you can't attempt such a, a grand project by name and by nature, you know, billions of, of pounds worth of building without it being political. And of course, it's been said it's, it's a massive vanity project. But for those of us who are interested in Egyptian antiquity, it will be great to see the stuff shown off to best advantage. So that's great to work with Egyptian colleagues to bring that to fruition. I mean, one big question, of course, that hangs over a, a museum like that is not what's in the museum but what's not in the museum so you know there's a big story there about the movement of egyptian antiquity all around the world and for a period of time between the 1880s to the 1970s there was a system called fines division and the egyptian government did allow under pressure in various cases material to leave in, in vast numbers so there are hundreds of thousands of objects in museums all around the world through this legally legitimate route but also through theft and through trading and dealing and it's it depends what position you take on it it's a complicated issue whether if all that material was returned to egypt then you'd have to go to egypt to see it and you know, speaking with, with a colleague who's the director of the Grand Egyptian Museum, for some people, seeing an Egyptian sculpture in Berlin or Manchester or Chicago is a way of engaging with Egypt and a way of advertising Egyptian tourism that might not otherwise exist. So it's a complicated issue. Of course, it's political. I fully believe it will open by the end of next year, and I'm sure it will be very impressive. I find my pins on this pinned where I am. When I'm in Liverpool or Manchester, I'm very, very glad there's lots of Egyptology there. It's very nice. When I'm in Egypt, I regard it as an absolute act of criminal theft that it was removed from the country. And I want to see it all in the right context. You know, the idea that so-called needles in Paris, New York and London, if they were back where they belonged, it would be so much richer. And yet, it's also kind of magical when you walk down the embankment and see it. So I'm glad I'm not making the decisions basically, because I'm hopeless. Well, yeah, the decisions are hard ones to make and trying to strike the balance between what we've just mentioned is tricky. 
what else is exciting? We all talk about the big ticket issues. We've got Ramesses, we've got Tutankhamun. Presumably there will be pre-dynastic stuff there. And will there be Hellenistic stuff? You mentioned the Ptolemies. Will that be there as well? Yes. I mean, one thing about the Grand Egyptian Museum is it kind of makes a value judgment about what is grand. There is... Yeah, where's the Islamic art? Yeah, <laughs> there's lots of beautiful, grand, impressive uh, Islamic, Coptic period, uh, Christian period material in Egypt. But that's not really part of that story. I mean, by the description of the gem, the Grand Egyptian Museum website, it's about kingship and about, you know, statehood. That's what you'll get when you go to the Grand Museum. It will take a, in a historical sweep. It'll take in the Old Kingdom, of course, the pyramids date to the Old Kingdom, and it will involve Hellenistic Egypt, so Egypt under the Ptolemies, into the Roman period. I worry that it therefore says, you know, history stops when, I don't know, Cleopatra pops her clogs. And as you said, Egyptian heritage is much richer than that, but decisions, curatorial decisions have to be made, I guess. Uh, will you be heading back to Egypt as soon as possible? I will indeed. I'm hoping to go in March. I don't think the museum will be open by March 2022, but yeah, I've not been back for just over two years, so can't wait. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Campbell, for coming on this podcast and talking about it. My pleasure. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.